Welcome to the Expert PK and Newbie Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Expert PK and UB Podcast, the podcast where each week we take a chapter of the Bible, we read it together, and we discuss it from three different perspectives. As always, I've got with me Lachlan Miller, our expert. Hello. Morgan Carter, our newbie. Hi. And I'm Joshua Lee, the PK pastor's kid. How are we doing, guys? I personally am exhausted. So I've just gotten back from a conference that we call Kick. Uh, which is a youth conference up in the Blue Mountains here in Australia. And it was such an excellent time for my youth ministry to be up there. However, we had a few incidents like when our bus broke down on the M4. Oh, no. And so... Is, isn't that the way with youth buses? It oh, always, always has to break down? <laughs> 50% of the time that I've driven my youth somewhere on a bus, the bus has broken down, which the youth delighted in pointing out to me multiple times across the weekend. Mm, <laughs> I swear it's not user error. Oh, okay. <laughs> I promise it. <laughs> How are you, Morgan? Yeah, I'm good. Um, I had a really good week in my new job and I finally finished my first term of social work and got really good marks. So had a good week, doing well. How about you, Josh? Good, doing well. It's the start of the working week for us here. It's a Monday. We said previously that we'd never do an evening recording, but here we are doing an evening recording. We def- <laughs> I remember that conversation that we had, which is... Our better episodes are always filmed during the day, and yet... Yeah, here we are. But that's okay. We fit it in within, <laughs> our, within our schedule. So hopefully this episode's a, still a good one, even mm. though we've had the entire day. But I'm, I'm doing well. Just multiple, uh, like, like church-related stuff uh, coming up. Um, just very, like, different organizations sort of engaging with the church. And so I'm having to, to sort of talk to uh, this non-profit organization and then um, our church council and sort of... Um, being the the voice in the middle of like okay what's what what's our plan here and what are we going to do whilst um also uh, editing the podcast mm. um my lovely wife Alyssa is now on a job so I've now taken the reins of editing it so hopefully it's not too different the the <laughs> editing styles do you think the uh <laughs> listeners can tell the difference between the editors i'd i'd wonder i'd i'd see i'd challenge people to see if they could um tell the difference i hope not mm. but I think there is a slight, slight difference. Just, I mean, I think anyone who edits anything or you know does a, like the same job on anything, there'll be a slight variation that they'll do. But I hope, I hope there's no difference. But if someone points, can able to point it out, then sure. <laughs> now we say it each week. We're going to plug it again. We have a Patreon. So if you want to support us financially, head over to our link tree. Social medias, you'll find the link tree there, um, and you'll see that we have a Patreon. If you want to support us in a financial sense, then head over to Patreon and you'll get sort of uh, early podcast releases as well as uh, extra content, extra long episodes there as well. So head over there if you're interested in that and keep up to date with our social medias and and, and all that whilst also subscribing, whether it's subscribing onto uh, the audio podcast side of things or just our YouTube, subscribe to it. Cool. So Morgan, what are we reading today? Today we are continuing on Genesis chapters 20, 21 and 22. Today's passage comes from the book of Genesis, chapters 20 to 22. In these chapters, the promise to Abraham again comes under threat when Abimelech takes Sarah into his harem. God intervenes and resolves the situation, finally setting the scene for the birth of Isaac, the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham. However, Abraham is then tested by God when God asks him to sacrifice Isaac. And Abraham passes with flying colors, displaying remarkable trust in God. 
I think straight up when starting this chapter, I want to know like a bit of background context on Abimelech. Is that how you say it? Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah just because I feel like he's just popped out of nowhere and it's all about him in this little story. Yeah. So we're fairly confident that Abimelech is a title rather than a name. Uh, so the name means God is my father, um, which is a pretty common thing for kings to claim for themselves when like you need a divine right to rule. And so kings would often claim that that divine right comes from a God of some type. Mm. And so Abimelech here is the king of the area that Abraham and Sarah have traveled to. Now, what's interesting about that is it's said that these are Philistines. However, the Philistines are a people group that didn't reach this era of Israel in mass until kind of the 12th century BC. And this is well before that. This is more like 19th century BC. And so most scholars think that this was like an early group of Philistines that had kind of separated early and come across and started to settle before the massive migration of those people would come later on. Is that a helpful starting place, Morgan? Yeah, I just wanted to know a little bit of context. Are they moving just because... They're nomads? Because I thought God sort of commanded them to sort of stay put. God commanded them to stay put in the land. Ah, okay. So this is still within the land of Canaan. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That makes sense. We're now sort of in the southeastern corner of Canaan is the area that this passage is talking about, but we're still in the promised lands that has been Mm. given to Abraham. But they are, yes, a nomadic people that wander around constantly looking for places to graze their herds. Like that is still the lifestyle that Abraham is living. Because, yeah, I, I always wonder, like Abraham sort of is wandering around and getting himself into these different situations. I almost think oh, if he just stayed put, then maybe <laughs> these events wouldn't happen. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, fair, but his lifestyle is nomadic and yeah, it's no, what he keeps doing. No, that's, that's, that's a fair point. It's like he's chasing the drama. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, chase the drama off. I cross 180 years of life. Yeah. <laughs> Even we who stay put, I'm sure, would have some serious drama across True. that length of time. I've never heard of like Abraham being like called, you know, chasing the drama. <laughs> that's a good that's a funny way of putting it. It also this passage starts with Abraham moved on from there, there being like within sight of Sodom and Gomorrah, which mm. has just been like destroyed. And so I don't want to say he's fleeing a natural disaster, but there could be a link there between why he's now chosen to move on to a different area. Which is fair because I think I would, if I saw an entire city or town get destroyed, I think I wouldn't stick I would around. Be in a, yeah, yeah. I wouldn't stick around. I'd be in a hurry to sort of maybe, oh, maybe it's not safe here. Mm. And we didn't hear about Sarah for a little bit in the last few readings. Where was she kind of hanging out during that? We did actually hear about Sarah last episode when the three visitors arrived in Abraham's tent um, and they told Abraham that you are going to have a son this time next year. And in chapter 18, we read that Sarah was uh, eavesdropping just behind the tent and heard this and then laughed out loud. And then we had that really awkward interaction where the Lord was like, Sarah, why did you laugh? And Sarah's like, I didn't laugh. And then the Lord was like, yes, you did. And I was like, well, that was a good interaction. <laughs> yeah, And then that was the conversation. Yeah, literally, then, then the story moves on. <laughs> but then is she just going along with them? Is she just traveling with them? Yeah, yeah. So she's Abraham's wife. So you assume that wherever he goes in the story, unless stated otherwise, that their whole group, their whole 
family is moving because we know that Mm -hmm. Abraham's household is huge. Like a few chapters ago, he pulled out 300 trained fighting men from his household. (laughs) And so when he moves, a lot of people move. And and, and Sarah's the matriarch of the family. Yeah, yeah. And as we'll see further on in the story with um, Hagar, her say has a lot of weight Mm. as well. As we read chapter 20, was there any sort of flashbacks happening in our mind? Yes. We've heard this story before. Mm, Almost this exact story before, to be honest. And my brain immediately goes like, Abraham, why? Like, Mm. it it does state why he he did it. And we probably should explain what what just like what's happening in this story. So they get to the get to these lands and out of protection for himself and Sarah to an extent, I think. I think it's more selfish than uh, yeah. Sarah. I, but, yeah. I hate to say it. He again says that Sarah is his sister, which in a weird way isn't so far from the truth. It's a half truth. Half truth. <laughs> but we saw this in when they didn't stay in the land of Canaan. Mm. They went to Egypt and we saw this exact story play out with yep. Pharaoh. Yes. And I'll give a spoiler alert that we will see this almost exact same story again, but with Isaac as the main character. And so this isn't just a sin that Abraham keeps going over and over. It's almost like a generational thing. Drama. <laughs> yeah. It's just like Abraham, like we, I thought you learned the first time. Mm. <laughs> like, you're, like, yes, you're trying to save your own skin, but like really at that, like you're going to go to that extent of like, you know, just mm. unfortunately pawning off Sarah. Yeah, because in chapter 12, which is this same story but reskinned for the Egypt context, like Pharaoh rebukes Abraham for lying and Abraham, we seem to realise in chapter 13, has gone through some character growth and suddenly starts to be faithful again. And yet here we have him repeating the exact same course of events from chapter 12, which is lying about Sarah's identity for his own self-preservation. In the end, that causes God to curse this other nation that has taken Sarah from him and then they proclaim their innocence and go in front of Abraham and rebuke him and go why did you bring all this evil upon us because we didn't knowingly do this is this sort of like to contrast the two stories of God cursing the Egyptian people there wait do they curse the Egyptian people I mean God does in chapter 12 yeah in chapter 12 yeah Uh, we're here God warns. I think he still curses though, because it says at the end of this story that the Lord had kept all the women in Abimelech's household from conceiving. Yeah, okay. Like yeah, true. that itself is already a curse upon the household for what for their actions. I mean, some very critical biblical scholars want to say that this event must have happened once in the lifetime of Abraham, but then somehow it's ended up in the Bible twice. But I think what's more likely is with that like any of us, like every one of our listeners, like every one of our hosts, we repeat the same bad actions over and over. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what we see in Abraham is even though he has lots of spiritual highs, lots of great moments in his life, he repeats the same old sins and issues over and over. And here's a prime example. We're not perfect people and it sort of shows the realism of even though sometimes when we say we're either going to do the right thing, like maybe nine times out of ten we do, but we can too as humans slip up. And even an exceptionally faithful man like Abraham can continue to slip up. Mm. So when reading this, I've got a study Bible, classic newbie. They're really helpful. Like just they are really a piece good. of advice I give to a lot of new Christians, but also a bunch of my youth 
group mm. is a study Bible is immensely helpful for understanding God's word. And it if you're approaching helpful. it for the first time, then grab a study Bible and have someone help you understand what mm-hmm. you're reading. Anyway, sorry, continue with your point now, Morgan. No, you're right. And I saw that in verse 7. Um, it says Abraham is the first person in the Bible to be called a prophet. Mm. Mm. It's true. It's the first time the word prophet appears in the Bible. Just thought that was important to point out. Do we know the definition of a prophet? A leader. It's like someone that prophetizes, but that's just using the word um, back, <laughs> yeah. in it, back in just itself. Just changing it into a verb, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, like a leader, but someone who... Um, I, I always sort of think prophets as some as people that are able to how, how am I going to word this like see into the future almost oh yeah okay kind like but 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 not so like in that like mystical voodoo way if that makes sense more like in terms of like a prophet as in like the, something that you've been told by God this either a future event or or what might to come and you're um, sort of bringing that news i think about future events i also think of it as a bit of a representative because i've spoken to people who are mormon and they all think they're prophets don't they so someone who like represents and like has a different relationship with god Mm. no 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 like at its base level a prophet is someone who speaks on behalf of god they're god's Mm. spokesperson and now that's why they often seem to have crazy future knowledge Because it is God that is giving them the words or the message to send. Most prophets just rock up to Israel and condemn their current state. They they are told by God that the current actions of Israel are inappropriate, are sinful, and they need to change. But at its base level, a prophet is just someone who speaks on behalf of God. And here we see that Abraham, for the first time in Scripture, is seen to be someone who speaks on behalf of God. There was one part in this um, next bit, there is no fear of God at all in this place, and I found that very powerful. I did a Bible study once and it was about how we should fear God but in a healthy way. Mm, I yeah. found it a really good, like, healthy thing. I think, Josh, you and I were on the same church camp and we had a big yeah. group discussion about fearing God and it stuck with me for a long time. But I just find that really powerful mm. like to come against that after all this drama. Yeah, definitely. Especially with the New Testament and uh, Jesus and his salvation, we often like to say, like, you know, the loving God um, Mm. and the loving Jesus and and that salvation being out of love, which obviously is true. But we then sometimes forget the other side of the healthy fear of God. Of Mm. the most powerful being in Mm. existence. And, you know, and if you put it that way of like the most powerful being in existence, yeah, if he's got the power to do whatever, then I, you know, having that sort of healthy fear, healthy is, awe or respect. Yeah, and that's and that's and I think that's the main point. It's the respect side of side of it. It's not to like be like cowering in fear like that. He's gonna like smite me down at any point. Mm. It's no, no, no. I respect and 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 humbled by by this. A fun fact is that later in Genesis, uh, just a few episodes away, we'll see that Yahweh is called the fear of Isaac. Like that is a title that Yahweh has, which will pick up this idea again of it's either the God that Isaac fears or respects or appreciates the authority of, but it could also be the fear of Isaac in terms of everyone else realizes that this God is scary. It's the scary God of Isaac. Is this Abraham questioning his faith in this situation? In verse 11 about this idea of there's no fear of God there. 
Yeah. No, I think this is just an observation of Abraham in trying to justify himself, and I don't mm. think he is correct in justifying himself, but in part mm. of him trying to justify himself, he makes the true observation that no one in this new area that he's arrived in respects or fears Yahweh. And because they don't respect or they don't follow Yahweh, Abraham was afraid of them because they clearly therefore don't follow the way of Yahweh. And this to me is like a good link from the prophet because he is a good person to firsthand tell them to kind of pull your head in like you should be fearful, like with what he's been through. And after being called a prophet, like that shows that relationship. Now he's portraying it, I reckon. True. There is a lack of faith that God will protect him. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But, I mean, we see that in a lot of the prophets anyway Yeah, of mm. God uses all these broken vessels and weak humans to get across his true and powerful words. You know, I, I feel like we say this every time when like something hard comes or, or a, a, a person out of the Bible or, like, you know, look at the disciples that ran when <laughs> all of them said that they wouldn't. Mm-hmm. Like, I think when push came to shove, a lot of us would also sort of crumble under that pressure. The other thing I noticed when reading this was the contrast between the two, Abraham and Abimelech. Is that how you say it? I've got to just keep. Yeah, no, no, you're right. Yeah. (laughs) Abimelech seems really generous and giving, but Abraham doesn't. Mm. Yeah. In the same way in the Genesis 12 story, Pharaoh comes off as like a very reasonable, generous person. Mm. Here, Abimelech comes off as a very reasonable, generous person who feels deceived and betrayed by Abraham's actions. Yeah. What I think is really important to pick up as we read through this story is the multiple times the text keeps telling us that Abimelech had not gone near Sarah, had Mm. not touched her, had God even says, I prevented you from doing that. And I think the reason the text repeats this so much is our very next story that we're about to discuss is the birth of the promised child, Isaac. And so the text is very concerned to go, yes, while Abraham has had this lapse, he's gone back to an old way of doing things, he's not demonstrated trust in God, God is about to come through for him and give him the son that has been promised, but we need to make it very, very clear that there's not even the smallest chance in the world that it's Abimelech's child. Yeah, no, that makes sense that we have to have no doubt Mm. that Abraham is the father. And that's why over and over it keeps saying Abimelech did not go near her. It's why Abimelech gives so many things to Sarah and Abraham as a show of vindication, as a public affirmation that he had never acted inappropriately. And the only other comment I'll have is the story ends with the Lord had kept all the women in Abimelech's household from conceiving because of Abraham's wife, Sarah. Now, God undoes that for this group of people when they return Sarah to Abraham. But I think, again, we're meant to see that the Lord is the one who is in control of conception. Well, now as we get to chapter 21, God's promise has now been fulfilled. And the text is very keen to highlight that this is God's promise being fulfilled because mm. it says that three times. Three times in what, like four verses, it makes it very clear that this is the promised child. And we have a baby boy. Named Isaac. I'm always interested to think what would have happened if they had not named him Isaac. Like there's multiple times where God comes to a barren woman, says, I'm going to give you a child. Here is the name you are to call them. And I've always wondered what would happen if they were like, like the idea, but (laughs) I'm calling my kid Frank. (laughs) Isaac, maybe a good middle name. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) 
But no, they do the right thing. They call him Isaac, which means he laughs. And Sarah even seems really on board with the name mm. and explains that when everyone hears that I've given birth, they're going to laugh, like laugh with joy. Who would have thought that someone as old as me would have a child? And then we also see the covenant of circumcision being fulfilled on the eighth day. I think in a previous episode, Morgan, you asked the question of why has or why will God wait so long to fulfill this promise? Am I remembering that right? Yeah. And now that it's come, I kind of feel really sorry for Sarah that she's so old and she's having this baby. Like she won't get a long life with the baby or child. I just feel kind of sorry for her. And yeah, I just, I feel bad that it's taken this long. Do you have any thoughts about why God may have waited this long? Is it to prove that if you have trust and faith that he'll provide? That is exceptionally similar to what I have written down here, which is that this is proof that this is a special child from God because there's no natural way that, like we, we heard in a previous chapter that Sarah had gone through menopause, like that was literally in the Bible. Mm. And so this is a woman who is actually physically incapable of giving birth and both her and her husband are super old. Sorry, incapable of conceiving. Anyway, they're super old, and clearly the fact that they have a child here means it is a gift of God. It is a miracle of God. There is something special about this child. And they also say in the next bit the child grew and was weaned, so obviously she breastfed as well, so mm-hmm. to be able to breastfeed when you shouldn't be able to at that age. Yeah, it all yeah, it all just sort of points to that sort of the miracle of God mm. and, and sort of like, you know, taking Isaac and then sort of compare and contrast to sort of Jesus. You have the, the miracle of virgin birth. Mm. Here we have a miracle of two um, elderly people having, having a son. And it's almost like this is the, the prelude to Jesus's birth. Mm. Like we have so many barren women in the Bible that God then gives a child to. We have Rebecca, then Rachel, Samson's mother, Hannah, even in the New Testament, and it feels like they're all building towards then the next step, and the next step is not just a barren woman but a virgin, Mm. and then we get to Jesus. I also feel kind of a little bit bad for the slave in the next bit because I feel bad that she's being referred to as a slave multiple times after what's just happened. Yeah, it's also interesting because earlier in Genesis she was called a wife. Yeah, I just feel bad for it. Now it's happened like it's done, we've used you for what we needed. Like I just... I feel a bit bad for her. Yeah, mm. she sort of gets tossed to the wayside. Sarah is very keen to toss Hagar to the wayside. Yes. But Abraham is not. And so I think the NIV here does us a bit of a disservice because it says Sarah's request to send away Hagar and Ishmael distressed Abraham greatly. But this really understates what's trying to be said. It should probably be translated with Abraham exploded in anger. Like Abraham loves his son Ishmael. Mm. It's the impression we're meant to get from the text. And his wife is like, no, send this son away that you love because I don't want any conflict with my son. And it's like a, he's a rock stuck in a hard place mm. at the moment. I mean, if, if I would like, you know, think if I put myself in his shoes, think, like thinking it from sort of like maybe a, like that fatherly perspective, you've waited so long to have a son. You have um, Ishmael, you know, you would love him like regardless of like who the, who the mother is, you would love him the same. And then all of a sudden your wife and you've now got Isaac is telling you to, we've got to get rid of like not only Hagar, but Ishmael as well. You know, and, and pure spite as well uh, from from of it. Like you would, yeah, I would, 
I'd be upset too. If, yeah. Like they, they, they are your own blood as well. Then you would want them around at the very least. But Ishmael doesn't help his case because Ishmael is the one mocking Isaac in this passage. True. Now in the Hebrew, it it takes the verb to laugh, but then gives it a malevolent twist. And so it's almost like to the son that they should be laughing at in joy, he laughs at in a mocking way. There's like there's a wordplay going on that's hard to explain into our English translations, but Ishmael is effectively teasing, but to a greater degree, Isaac, the promised child. Poor Hagar, single mum. Yeah, her time in the wilderness is tough. Yeah. Like she goes, she is forced out. Mm-hmm. So she's having, she's, and it says here, like aimlessly wandering in the wilderness of Beersheba and is going to go put her son in a bush and go off because she can't stand the thought of him dying or her dying and either one of them witnessing witnessing it but again Ishmael's name means God hears and again because this is the second story that is similar to this is God hears Ishmael crying and he responds Mm. he intervenes and saves them both how does he do that by providing them water. So they're stuck in a desert, right? They've run out of water. That's why Hagar thinks that they're both about to die. And God appears before Hagar. And then as he disappears, she suddenly sees a well in the distance, a source of water. And despite, you know, what Hagar and Ishmael's gone through, God's God's still there for them. Like, you know, we keep saying we feel sorry for Hagar, but she's just unfortunately just caught up in this. I don't know, you know, wasn't necessarily her choice to, to have this life and then to be part of, you know, she it's, it's said that she's a slave. So she for, sort of forced into, forced into this and then having to sort of go through this and then kicked out just for what you think is doing the right thing. Mm. But yeah, no, God's still there. Yeah. But it is, again, God who appears before Abraham and says, follow what your wife wants. Mm. And what Sarah wanted was Hagar gone. And so it is, again, who God has allowed the forcing out of Hagar, if not outright commanded it. And I think that's because we need to make sure that there is no threat to Isaac's inheritance. He is meant to be the promised child, but he's not the firstborn of Abraham. And so in order to protect Isaac's rights, to the claims of the firstborn, they sort of need to get rid of anyone that may try to usurp that. And that is why we see this recorded. And I can imagine like if, if that didn't happen, I could imagine the two boys sort of at odds at each other mm. and we could have another two brothers fighting each other or one of them murdering mm-hmm. it. I, you know, I could mm. very much see if they stay together, Ishmael murdering Isaac yep, because he was jealous. Cain and Abel situation. Yep. And I don't know if this is of any significance, but something I picked up in the end of this chapter in 33, where it says Abraham planted a tree. He was always finding trees or going to trees, but he's planted a tree. Is there any significance around that? There is, but I think we need to discuss the bit of the story that leads up to the planting of the tree. You know me, I just want to get to the <laughs> Yeah, you're always jumping ahead to the next story. Because <laughs> what happens after this Hagar and Ishmael story is Abimelech reappears and Abimelech comes to Abraham and says, you're a great nation. I can see that. I can see that God is blesses you. Let's make a treaty. Let's make a covenant together so that we can live at peace together. And Abraham seems fairly on board with it, 
but is quick to point out that Abimelech's men have forced them out of a well that Abraham dug by hand. So Abraham is like, I I sort of want that well back, please. (laughs) And eventually after a bit of old school negotiation, the well is granted to Abraham as his, as part of the negotiations. And therefore Abraham plants a tree and you only plant a tree when you feel like there's going to be a guaranteed water source. So the planting of the tree is a moment of faith from Abraham saying, I believe that this patch of land, this well is going to be mine forever. And to prove it, I'm planting a tree, which presupposes that I'll always have access to this water source. Is that to say that that's my tree or that's a a known landmark to me? Yeah. And there's your tree story. (laughs) (laughs) It's a treaty. A tree Oh, nice. Keep that in, please. <laughs> that, that, that was good. Was there a reason they called the place Beersheba? Yeah. There's actually some debate about what Beersheba means. So some people think it means well of seven. So you see in the story that Abraham puts aside seven lambs and gives them to Abimelech. And so it's like the well of seven, like the cost of this well was seven lambs other people think that it comes from a root word that means well of the oath which makes sense on verse 31 that says it was called this because the two men swore an oath there so it means one of those things because every time a name is specifically referenced in scripture there's a reason for it like it has a significance and so it's either well of seven or well of the oath and I, and I can see why people would like the seven because seven is that number that likes to go throughout the Bible. The one more thing I would want to point out about this location, Beersheba, is it became famous as the southern boundary of Israel. And so we're sort of meant to see that this is sort of as south as Israel goes and it is significant. And I guess for, for me, my final sort of thought on this part before we move over to chapter 22 and we sort of get stuck into into that because I know that's going to be a whole entire thing in itself. Mm. But why do we get this story, this, um, this part? Because I feel like out of every big major thing that happens, for me, it just doesn't seem as significant. Like, you know, it's fine that it's in there, mm. right? But I guess why? Do we remember the promises to Abraham? One of the promises is I'm going to give you this land. Mm. Like this whole land of Canaan is going to be yours. We have not yet seen Abraham legally obtain any piece of this land whatsoever. Not a single tree, not a single pebble. No part of this land is legally Abraham's until now. So within the span of one chapter, the promised child has arrived and he owns the first thing like grounded piece of real estate in the land, which is a well. Now, a well may not sound impressive to us, but for like a nomadic herdsman, having a guaranteed source of water that is now legally yours is hugely important and probably one of the best possible things you could own in this land. And so to answer your question of why it's in here is the fulfillment of God's promise is in this story. Yeah, no, I, I I completely forgot about that part, especially just being so tr- like transfixed on Isaac and needing needing that promise fulfilled. Completely forgot about Abraham's blessed and that those that either do harm to him or or bless him will also receive either harm or blessing from God, and is also the land is is his. Or, you know, ordained by God. I honestly completely forgot about all that. So yeah, no, that makes perfect sense of why 
this is in because it's it's giving us that he he owns this world. Yeah, he owns something. He owns something. So, Josh, I believe you had a little bit of a story about this next part. I'd love to hear it. I haven't heard it. I'm not sure if Lockie has, but I would love to hear it. Yeah. So probably to give some background, more so just like as like what we're getting to in the text, we're getting to chapter 22 and it is labelled in at least my Bible, Abraham's uh, Faith Tested. And this is where uh, we see the story of Abraham being commanded by God to take Isaac, his son, up to a mountain to sacrifice him. Mm-hmm. Now, I have a work colleague and a friend who we were we were chatting one day and it was one of those um, friends and one of those chats where you're not quite sure where they stand on on faith. And, and I wasn't quite sure if he knew my faith background as, as well. And it just sort of organically came up and we were sort of uh, chatting about it. Uh, and so it was a nice chat to sort of be able to have have that sort of com- conversation, um, especially in a work setting. It sometimes doesn't always come up, and he was on board with um, you know the morals and the ethics of of the Bible, and and sort of generally saying that it's that the the message that uh, religion brings is generally good. But he really had struggles with this part this this story here and i feel like that's not uncommon mm. especially because it's like well we've waited so long to have isaac mm-hmm. like we're, we're us here reading it we've waited so long to get to get to isaac abraham and sarah have waited all along and then all of a sudden god comes around and says all right time to go sacrifice him like I'm, I'm like we know the ending of the story here that God then goes and says no, 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 don't, don't, don't go through with it, and there's a ram that that's seen there, and they sacrifice that instead. But even, even like for, for me, this is a weird and wild story of like just why, mm. especially after God promised this son, why now go kill him? That's that story, which I think sets up nice. To, in, mm. Like it sets us up for it, puts us in this sort of space. I've sort of been uh, waiting because at the time of that of uh, talking to um, my friend, I really didn't know what to sort of say. Mm. Just to sort of just nod and like, yeah, no, I don't really know much about that. And sort of was waiting until we got up to this episode to sort of like, all right, let's unpack it. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's see if we could provide some clarity mm. for you, your work colleague and any listeners. I see it straight up as like I feel like Abraham keeps getting tests thrown at him and like challenges and I see this as like a last kind of do you know what I've given to you like don't stuff this up like one more kind of I don't know I see it as that you don't just get away with an easy now that you've got it like I think bringing up the fact that it's a test is mm. the most important interpretive step to this passage because mm. we have access to information here that Abraham did not have which is verse yeah. one, sometime later, God tested Abraham. Now, Abraham did not know that, but we get an extra insight into the text, which that this was a test. So we know from later parts of scripture, specifically the Mosaic law, that God condemns child sacrifices. He literally says that it is repulsive to him. So mm. we know that this is not a command that God wants to see fulfilled. This is some type of test. I was reading one scholar during the week who argued that for this to be a real test, it had to, in some ways, defy logic. 
like it had to be something that Abraham wanted to resist. A test that he could refuse mm. that mm. It, it, you know uh, up until up until this point it had to be so like major like a t- the test of faith had to be so like you, god you wouldn't you wouldn't think for a second that after being promised a son that god would turn around and mm. want to see, want him sacrificed because any other test at this point could just abraham could have done it easily potentially but also hopefully we've been seeing an abraham that is slowly across the entire lifetime becoming the the way Christians would phrase it is more like Jesus being sanctified like hopefully he's slowly having his character shaped to be more godly as a human being that is what we hope to see out of Abraham as his life goes on and so as we hit towards the end of his life now cuz we've jumped probably at least 10 years between these two chapters like Isaac has gone from a newborn to a boy that can walk up a mountain carrying logs so Many years has passed between these two chapters. I have two points I want to raise. The first one is I find it interesting how easy he could send Hagar and Ishmael off, but then when it's his son, like he's by his side, he's like in this test of faith, like the contrast between it. Like it's a lot harder of a test when it's your own son and you are invested in that and you want to keep him around and it's like it seems very different. Just to quickly jump in on that point, Abraham did have God's assurance in the Ishmael situation, because in chapter 20, God promised, I will make Ishmael a great nation because he is your son. Mm. And so Abraham sent off Ishmael with the assurances of God that Ishmael would be cared for, provided for, and become great himself. Whereas here, the difference is kill him, like kill Isaac. Like there's no positive consequences to it. It's just do it. Something that um, I noticed too I don't know if it's because like worship's my favorite thing ever, but it said, um, I will go over there and worship and come again to you. Like they still had time to go and worship in this moment. And I think what Abraham means is his sign of worship, his sign of devotion is to go and make a sacrifice. But that verse you've just pointed us to, I think is especially important for understanding this story because he says, we will come back to you. Yeah. And so I want to jump us forward to Hebrews 11 verses 17 to 19. This is what the author of Hebrews says. By faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had embraced the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son, even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead. And so in a manner of speaking, he did receive Isaac back from the death. Now, what the author of Hebrews is saying is that Abraham was confident that he was going to return from that mountain with his son, Isaac. He was utterly confident. He was so confident of that, that he believed that even if he killed Isaac, God would raise him back from the dead because he had the assurance from God that all of the promises were going to come through Isaac. So Isaac needed to return from that mountain alive. Which is a mark of great faith. Mm. I keep thinking of it as if I had, like, if I was called to do this with my own son or daughter, I don't know if I could go through with it. Mm. Like, you know, like even, like even, like, yeah, I agree. with with that uh, that assurance, I would have serious doubts, mm. and I I don't know if I, you know, even if even if you got all the way to the end and you were raising a dagger in the air, I don't know if I could to have that uh, amount of faith to even think that um, Isaac would 
be raised back from the dead if he had to go through it, which would be horrific mm. um, just thinking about that situation if it did unfold that way. But again, it's just a great mark of, of, of faith here. Some people have argued that this is not a moment of faith because Abraham was meant to resist the sin that his child sacrifices. But I don't think that is at all how we're meant to read this passage. We're meant to see this as the highest point of faith in Abraham's life. This is when he decided that I give everything to God, everything. Now, I have such faith in God's promises that I know Isaac needs to survive this encounter, but if God has asked it of me, I give everything to God. And this is Abraham passing this test with flying colours. Do you think that because Abraham was a prophet, he had some kind of internal inkling? Like, yes, he had faith, but do you think there was more to it that he knew that it wouldn't go through? Look, we don't know what's beyond just in the text, right? but I suspect not necessarily. Like what Abraham had is a lifetime of walking with Yahweh as his God and seeing God's provision, seeing God caring for him and promising him things and having total confidence in those promises being fulfilled. And one of those promises is, I will make you a great nation through your son Isaac. And so I think Mm -hmm. the author to the Hebrews in that New Testament book has absolutely hit it right, which is Abraham at the same time believed two things. He believed that Isaac had to survive this encounter, but he also believed that he needed to follow God and do exactly what God said, which was to kill Isaac. And the only way Abraham could put those two things together was, well, God's got to raise him back to life. Later on in we see about multiplying your offspring as the stars of heaven, aren't they a bit old and like that was kind of a one-off fluke that they had this baby? Again, that promise is fulfilled through Isaac. So it's multiplying your offspring as in your descendants, your family tree Uh, is going to be as many as the stars of the heavens. And that only comes with Isaac surviving this encounter. What's also interesting about those verses you just pointed us towards is this is the last time in scripture we see God speak to Abraham, Hmm. which just feels just like at least a tad interesting. It does. I'm, I'm almost saddened by that. We need to point out this is just the last recorded time. We have no idea what happens in the the next several years of Abraham's life. No. But what we do see in this last interaction is God swearing by himself, like giving another oath, another confirmation of the promises to Abraham. Like he's constantly reaffirming that he will do everything he's promised to Abraham. And because of this great act of faith that he would not withhold even his own son, then he yeah, he's going to receive everything God has promised. And I think we're meant to hopefully pick up on that language I just used of did not even spare his own son, because as we know in Romans 8.32, God did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. Because I think it's very easy to relate these two stories, the story of Isaac and the story of Jesus. Even the location, so Mount Moriah, where this story is set, based on 2 Chronicles chapter 3, it seems that Mount Moriah is the temple mount, as in the location where the temple is one day going to be built. And so the sacrifice of Isaac happens on the place where God will set up a sacrificial system that will allow him to interact with his people. Then in New Testament terms, if we go further forward even more, Calvary, the hill that Jesus dies on, is not far from here. And so I think as we read this story of Isaac, I see, I see Jesus in there, hiding but in there. I could see someone like your work colleague still saying, 
So yeah, sure, it's a test. Abraham was confident that Isaac was leaving that mountain alive no matter what, but isn't it always wrong to take a human life? Regardless, I can see that being a pushback to this story and to the character of God within this story. Even if it was ordained by God, Mm. which feels weird to say. Is there any thoughts on that question, whether it's always wrong to take a human life as we think about the character of God in relation to this story? From a self-defense purposes, I want to say like it's quote-unquote fine like you know, like if 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 your if it was your life or the other person's life, out of self defense, then yeah. I mean, ultimately, I wouldn't want to. Like if 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 like putting myself in that situation, I wouldn't want to. So like take someone's life. But if it came down to that, unfortunately, yes. Well, let's take it to a different level: an innocent human life. Okay. Because I think everyone will grant you the self-defense argument always. Yes. Um, an innocent life, I, well, I mean, like, from my own <laughs> for my own standards, I think it's never right to take an innocent <laughs> person's life. I would say that's probably a really good standard to have, actually. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, for the record. Um, yeah, it's a tough question. Like, because, you know, it's it's because it's almost sort of saying, even if God commanded, ordained, told you this is what you need to do, is that still okay from a human ethical standpoint of like like what we like as humans understand of our of our own morals i would say like no and if i was put in that situation i think my my first instinct would be to like argue with god <laughs> yeah we don't see a lot of arguing by abraham in this passage that that always throws me because yeah, like oh if god appeared before me and told me to kill someone oh i would need to be 120% confident that it was that was actually god speaking to me yes this feels like where we start to get into those like cults yeah cults or just crazy individuals who yeah, where they think they hear something and then go do something atrocious yeah. i want to say i disagree with it but i'm but i'm happy to submit to god if that mm. makes sense so yeah, I'm that's ha- a nice standard i like yeah so i'm happy to be submissive to god and say well yes this this if this is your command but from my own perspective, I disagree, <laughs> but ha- but happily to be wrong. You know what I mean? Like, because as Christians, we believe God is the highest moral standard. Mm. He's the highest definition of good. Now we also get to read this story and go, ah, this was a test. Like this is fine. God was making sure Abraham realized that everything he had was from God and was prepared to give it back to God if necessary. Mm. Like, great. This was just a test. But God is the highest standard of good. So ultimately, whatever he says goes. Yes. I do remember reading a philosophical paper back when I was at uni. I was doing an ethics subject. And uh, the paper was arguing that if when you killed someone, they resurrected back to life in better health than before, then it would no longer be morally wrong to kill someone. In fact, the morally right action would be to go around killing people. And I remember reading this paper just being like, what is going on here? This guy's out of his mind. But I feel like the author of Hebrews almost suggests that exact scenario to this story. He says Abraham was prepared to do it because he believed God would resurrect Isaac from the dead. Like, he didn't just believe it. Like, he had 120% confidence. Like, he knew that was going to be the outcome. And so... I would suggest that it it doesn't make the action wrong. 
us as humans, we definitely live in like a state where we need a hundred plus percent. Yes. That the outcome is going to be what they say it's going to be, Mm. you know, we can have all the faith in the world, but unfortunately like there is a tipping point or a line that we're like, I do need that guarantee. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. But I think what is good about this story is there's nothing about this story that suggests in any way that it's repeatable or is something to be expected. So I'm actually prepping a youth Bible study and then talk on this topic coming up. And I was thinking through like how you land a passage like this. Like what do you want your youth or your congregation or your podcast listeners to walk away in terms of application? And I've come up with four points that... I'm going to present to our youth ministry when we teach on this topic. Hopefully they're good. And if you give me too much pushback, then you may have saved my youth from some bad application. (laughs) But here's the four ways that I think we can apply this particular story, which is firstly that faith completely obeys God. The second one is that faith surrenders the best to God. The third is that faith waits on God to provide everything we need. And then the fourth one is that true worship is costly. And so those are just some ways to start thinking about how you could apply this in your life. You're saying that the that last point, this act of faith is costly because he could lose his son. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And then to wrap up our episode, we get Morgan's favorite sections of the Bible. Just a quick little genealogy. No. <laughs> well, given that you like genealogy so much, Morgan, summarize what this genealogy is saying for us. I need a visual family tree, the whole Bible. <laughs> That would be a helpful, that actually would be quite helpful. Why can't they just have normal names? They were Bob normal names Fred to and them. Frank and like. <laughs> to them, they were normal. If Abraham <laughs> rocked up in the 21st century, apart from the names we've stolen from the Bible, he'd be like, what are you doing? Like, what What a dumb name. He would look at the I name just, Lachlan and be like, Whoa. If any listeners out there have the names in this genealogy, that's okay. I know several but... girls called Rebecca. Several. <laughs> no, but the the stranger. No, sorry, not stranger. The more the. Why? What's wrong with Buzz? The different ones. <laughs> yeah, Buzz Lightyear is a hero. How dare you? Zoldrin. I don't know. I just like. I think if these names were basic names, I would find gene genealogy gene. What's it called? <laughs> Genealogies. Genealogy a lot easier to understand. I think the names just throw me off. Yeah, no, that's fair. And and it, it's like whenever we get to a genealogy, we've gotten the entire book. So like like when we looked mm. at the genealogy of Jesus, we're like, well, we know where he's come from. Like we and and other people's gene- genealogy, we're like, well, we know their lineage anyway. So we have the we have the added ability of the start and the end and being able to see the entire timeline as a whole. But. Mm. This is another proof of where whose ancestors are who, right? Is as like for, for the Hebrew culture, this is just sort of like part of part of it, right? Well, I think there's a little more to it this time. So oh. this genealogy is included to introduce kind of the pedigree of Rebecca. So uh-huh. spoiler alert, Rebecca is going to marry Isaac in like two chapters' time. And this is the first time she's introduced. Oh. A little bit of a foreshadow. Yeah. So it's meant to go, ah, we now know this character, Isaac. We've had chapter 22. We know Isaac. But what is going to become of him? And more importantly, it's showing us that God is already working behind the scenes. 
Abraham hasn't even thought about the fact that at some point he's going to need to find a wife for his son Isaac, but God is already working behind the scenes and preparing the person for him. And so I think that's why we have what these, what, three verses at the end of this chapter of just God is working because Rebecca's about to enter the story and here's her background, here's her story because she's going to be a main character. My reflection, something I mentioned a bit earlier in the episode about reminding myself of the healthy fear of God. I think that was a good reminder for me to stay humble in it, not take it for granted and to not take advantage of it and yeah, have that healthy fear. My reflection is Abraham has been promised so many times the same things. Even at the very end of the last chapter we just read there, like God reaffirms the promises again, but it's so nice to start seeing the fulfillment. He has a well, he has a son, and as we just saw in that last genealogy, he's already prepping a wife for that son for the many numerous offspring that he promised to come about. And Mm. so Abraham was faithful to the end. We see his absolute pinnacle of his faith journey as he follows God in even the hardest of things, and it's nice to see the promises being fulfilled in these stories. And that gives me great trust and confidence in God too. My takeaway is to not always, is to not forget all of God's promises. As we sort of saw early in the episode, I forgot about God's promises of like just Abraham being given the land. I was so transfixed on just the promise of Isaac that I forgot about all of other um, God's promises to Abraham. So for me, I think as an application point is just to always remember that God's going to fulfill all all of his promises to you, not just one promise Mm. or not Mm. just what you think is the main promise or the major promise. All of God's promises have equal weight and he will uphold all of them to you Mm. through through your own faith, obviously, but he will still uphold them. So this has been a big episode and we've had a like a, a lot of questions at the end, a lot of, you know, some, maybe some more ethical, moral dilemmas here that we've asked ourselves. And so we'd love to hear if uh, you listening and watching uh, have got your own thoughts, um, your own, uh, as well as own questions, send them into, into us. We'd love to uh, see those, those comments, those questions, those thoughts about what you've gotten out of it, what you're struggling with, what you're wrestling. We'd love to hear about that that and if you like like with you know my work colleague and my friend if you know someone else that might be struggling with things that have come up through this episode share share the podcast around share this episode or any other episodes to people that think that need it or you know think that don't we just love this to to spread not only the podcast but the um the word of god to spread through it um, keep up to date with our social social medias as i said at the top of the episode and if you want to support us not only sort of just like listening and sharing but if you want to support us on a financial uh, front then head over to patreon there you'll be able to find uh, extra content uh, we post uh, um, uh, uh, these episodes day early uh, as well as uh, extra long episodes well how about i just end with a word of prayer Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you that we can come together, that we can again read your word. We thank you for your servant Abraham, and we think that we are able to see his faith, that even through the ups and downs of his life, that we're able to sort of see a 
role model of, of faith that we should try and uphold. And we, th- we thank you for all the promises that you have given your faithful servants, but you also are able to give us. And I pray for the, the weeks ahead, for that you, you're with everyone and that whatever is on our heart, that we give it to you, Lord. In Jesus' mighty name I pray. Amen. 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 Thank you, everybody that is watching and listening. Thank you, Lockie and Morgan. And we'll see everyone next week. Bye. 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 A Mustard Seed Creative Production.